HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and Three, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food, and so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today we are about to do a show that I think really encompasses everything we think about when we think about food tech, when we think about the future of food and how technology is working to impact what we eat and what our lives will be like. You know, so many times on this show, food tech represents itself as an app on your phone to maybe uh, connect with other diners or get recommendations or bring food to you or online grocery shopping and all those types of things. Sometimes we talk about actual new food products. Sometimes we talk about actually integrating everything of technology, connectivity, robots, AI, indoor, farming, all those types of things, all of it together to make food and get it to you. So I'm really excited about this show. And I know I say that often, but um, this is just an amazing topic. And it's an amazing thing to be talking about right now at this moment in time, because so much of it is really relevant to the world that we live in today. Our guest today is David Lee. You may have remembered his voice way back from episode 89 when we spoke to him. He was the uh, COO and CFO of Impossible Burger. Today we are talking to him as the president of a company called App Harvest, which earlier this year just brought their first harvest of indoor grown tomatoes to grocery stores across the country. 
David, thank you for taking time to speak with us about what's happening at App Harvest. I'm very excited to join you again and excited to talk about food technology. So just before we get into uh, the details about App Harvest and the tomatoes and the indoor farming and the robots and all those things, really quickly, I when I first started reading about App Harvest, I assumed the name App was thinking about applications, applications in you know, science, tech, on our phones, but that's not actually what the name stands for, is it? No, actually, Jonathan Webb founded App Harvest with a, a, a belief that one day central Appalachia, uh, Kentucky, where he had been born and raised, could be the new epicenter of sustainable, tech-enabled, renewable agriculture that we could one day create an economy that would replace some of what the region has suffered through with the decline of coal mining with renewable technology that serves uh, everybody in the United States, uh, great fruit and vegetable uh, grown in a better way. Um, Hence the name. It's actually a reference to the heart of the country where we're seeking to create an epicenter. So I think... Probably many people who will look at the title of this show and see App Harvest and hear the name and think about it, you know, we're, we're so used to saying, yep, there's an app for that. Um, we've even done some AI and some technology for farmers to help um, some agronomy apps and things like that. So uh, it's, it's a funny, I think, assumption that probably many people will make about the company with the name App Harvest. And then the simple answer of what that app actually stands for is really interesting and I think sets the, sets the table, if you will, for the idea of kind of plunking down a 60-acre facility in the middle of a place that you would not think of as being potentially the tomato capital of the United States. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we announced yesterday that this company that seeks to be, you know, 12 plus multi-acre farms strong in central Appalachia just purchased uh, a great robotics company. So so we are central Appalachian based. Um, we are a food company, but candidly, we we, we do have many apps coming because we are a technology company uh, as well. So before we get to the robots, and I'm excited about the robots because who doesn't love robots? I mean, if that doesn't say science and high tech, then I don't know what does. Um, let's, let's back up a little bit and let's just articulate a little bit better for the home audience what App Harvest is. And it's worth noting that App Harvest is a very new company. Um, David, you started there, um, you know, as the president earlier this year, and you had been with them as a board member last year. Uh, it, it sort of is coming onto the scene at a very opportune moment in many ways, perhaps, you know, uh, in terms of what the what the world and, you know, agriculture needs right now, but also has some some tricky things maybe that are happening at the same time also that we're aware of because of the, the past year with the global pandemic. So there's also not a lot of, of startup indoor farming companies that spring to life with 30 acres of production. We've talked to a lot of indoor farming companies on this show where they're talking about small rooms or shipping container size farms and things like that. So before we get into the future and the robots, walk us through a little bit essentially about 
what App Harvest does. And, and if you can, while you're explaining that, um, you're opening at a time of a pandemic, you're opening at a time when our food uh, distribution channels are really broken, you're opening at a time when our um, industrial um, you know, food workers and farm workers are in jeopardy because of the pandemic, you're opening at a time where people are voracious for fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, we've encountered, um, you know, low supply and high demand. So if you can, while you're sort of explaining, you know, the the opening of and the idea behind, I, I'm curious to know how much of it is just opening and unfolding as planned, or if there were small tweaks that you made along the way to take into consideration what's happened with the pandemic, or if the pandemic just sort of proved some of your theories and proved some of the hypotheses that this is absolutely the the best direction to be going in. Yeah, it's interesting. I think well before this global pandemic, when you think about what App Harvest was founded for, um, the company founded by a gentleman named Jonathan Webb was really founded for the global need that we can't make enough food the way we've been making it to serve the incredible demand for it. Almost every major institution that studies this question of food security uh, has noted that, you know, by 2030, so this is not within 100 years, this is within a short few years, that the real impact of climate change, along with our growing population, means that we may not be able to provide food to the many who want it. And this is true here in the United States, as it is true globally. And it's why you've seen headlines written pre-global pandemic about how uh, countries and nation states, whether it's Singapore's 30 by 30 initiative or in the Middle East, uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, and then the United States, we're all talking about national security in the context of how do we feed our populations? And so this company, App Harvest, was founded to be one part of the solution to make food in a better way. And in our case at App Harvest, it's, it's not just to make vine crops and leafy greens that don't have those chemical pesticides, that don't travel for weeks on end imported from outside the country of consumption. You know, here in the U.S., two-thirds of the vine crops, the, the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the peppers you eat, are shipped in from outside the country. This is from products that have been bred in their seed to last a long time on a truck, not bred for nourishment or health. And oftentimes the folks who are working to grow this imported product are under the worst conditions imaginable. So App Harvest was created to see if we could do everything better, to provide employees a living wage, to train local high schoolers and community college and vocational college students how to have a, a high-tech profession in renewable, sustainable agriculture. Um, and our idea is from seed to plate. We like to think we use the best non-GMO seed. We like to think we grow product in a way that uses the fraction of the rainwater, no chemical pesticides, and that it ships within a day to 70% of the buying population in the United States grown right in central Appalachia. Um, it's an ambitious goal. And, you know, while the company 
had been around for some years as a private startup. You're right. It, it's only in the last, call it two to three months, where we have hit prime time. We are probably the largest scale, if not the first NASDAQ listed public controlled environment ad company uh, that's seeking to do ambitiously everything I've described. Uh, and that means that people are watching. And we hope more and more companies like us um, seek the same mission because um, it's quite a big problem that we need to solve. The interesting uh, thing is that many, many people, countries, leaders, consumers are talking about issues and problems, but there really aren't very many standardized definitions or goals of how to resolve those issues. You know, it's similar if, to kind of scale it down to something that people are a little more familiar with. You know, in the United States, what's something, you know, calling something organic, what does that mean? Calling something fair trade, what does that mean? We know these uh, words give us an idea of what the product is or give us an idea of how something was grown or produced. But uh, a hard, fast definition of what a better way means or a hard, fast definition of what is better for the planet is kind of left up to individuals in many respects to make those decisions you know, for the purchases that they make and the companies that they build. So for your company, you know, the decisions to be chemical and pesticide free and non-GMO and using um, recycled rainwater, those are not mandates from somebody saying, this is what we think solves the problem. This is a group of people saying, this is what we think solves the problem, which is an interesting idea. But I wanted to also just get back to your point about, um, you know, looking at numbers of what people need and what it represents. Um, David and I had a conversation before the show, and he said something that was just so smart and spot on. When we first talked, he was in uh, at Impossible Foods and in the plant-based burger business, and now he is in the um, indoor farm tomato business. And he said, tomato is the burger of vegetables. And I kind of agree with that. And, you know, in doing research for the show, I was a little amazed to find out that, um, Tomatoes are actually the second most consumed vegetable in the United States. Potato is number one. Tomato is number two. And according to the USDA in 2019, the average American consumed 31.4 pounds of tomatoes, which is a lot. And which is not yeah. just in the summer from a nice farm stand with an heirloom tomato. And just to, to cap off in terms of like numbers, in terms of... Um, uh, the uh, agricultural business, financial, you know, environmental and shipping idea that surrounds so much of our agriculture, especially when we're talking about a product that's consumed at that level. Uh, 2019, $2.4 billion of tomatoes were imported, and apparently 2.1 billion of them came from Mexico, which is an amazing amount of money to spend, you know, outside if you could spend it Well, inside. and for a perishable product, yeah. you know, it's multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and in this case, we're talking about tomatoes that are driven across the border from oftentimes Mexico, uh, grown in not the best conditions. And, you know, you you hit it spot on, you know, the, the tomato, if you will, is the most populous um, fruit and veg that we could have picked. It, it spans the humble use in everyday conventional meals all the way to the heirloom use. And with plenty of added value um, recipes, you know, need only look to the hamburger, the good old fashioned American hamburger with ketchup on it. And there's your application of the tomato. 
And yet those of us who consume so much of this incredible product, we really don't know oftentimes where it comes from, what is covering it in the case of chemicals and pesticides. And and we've really outsourced to others um, far away from us using tremendous amounts of energy and diesel to produce product in a way I don't think we're very proud of. And so the opportunity is in a way that's just as cost competitive, create a better product. You, you, you touched upon something quite interesting, which is at Up Harvest, we have the privilege of being able to start with a clean sheet of paper. Oftentimes, companies who seek to do better talk about how they're different. You know, we aren't conventional, we're organic, says Company X, or, um, you know, we source our product from other parts of the world that have fairer trade practices. Well, for us, without labels, we just said, okay, we're going to build a 2.8 million square foot farm. We're going to employ skilled labor right here in the United States. We're not going to use harsh chemical pesticides. We aren't going to import water. We aren't going to have soil runoff. We're going to recycle rainwater in climates that are getting wetter and wetter. And we're going to produce a product that we think is better in all regards. And then we're hoping and betting that the customer will follow because so many of us consumers of food, we're, we're rather cynical about the label of the day, um, the confusion that in some ways I contributed to when I was a part of Big Food at Del Monte, where I was running the food business. And getting back to just simple, better food practices is the idea of App Harvest, but doing it at, at a very large scale um, to, to satiate some of this demand we see in the market. I do think that we have seen over the years consumers becoming more and more aware of where their food comes from, how it's grown, how it's transported, what the company does with the money that, you know, they earn from selling the food and, you know, fruits and vegetables and things. And and it's it's been an increasing uptick of awareness and information for consumers and I do think that has had an impact. I do think there's this gray area of marketing where people think words on a package mean one thing and maybe they don't mean anything at all. But I wonder if, given the past year of the global pandemic with people sheltering in place, with food being scarce, with people being really uh, concerned about simply putting something healthy on the table for their family at dinner, when they're standing in the grocery store in the in the vegetable aisle, do you think these these ideas play a part in their decision making right now, or do you think they're going to just kind of grab what's on the shelf in front of them because they're happy there's something there for them to bring home? Are we are we at a point where consumer awareness is at its all time high in terms of the issues of the food chain, but they're like basic need demand has never been greater as well. How do you think those two things square for just, you know, generally from, you know, the position of, you know, that you've been in for the past few years in this new food space? And then how do you think that squares, you know, specifically for something like app harvest and a, and a beefsteak tomato? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that in some ways, consumers are just beginning to become, as you know, more and more aware. One of the things we've seen associated with this global pandemic is, is the fact that consumers do want to know where food comes from, you know, and what does it do to their health? But frankly, also, what does it do to the planet? 
And, you know, it's funny if, if you were to look three, four years ago and ask how important are these things to the consumer when they reach for a food product, these issues would have been way down on the list. But if you now do this consumer research and ask, for example, what's the impact on the planet I, of the food choices they're making, I think you'll find that it's within the top five. And that is very new and, and perhaps maybe a function of the fact that we now know that this pandemic has forced us all to be isolating at home in many cases, closer to family and more um, forced introspection, I guess, has happened in the course of this pandemic. The, the other notice that even before the pandemic, there were natural examples of folks who, who wanted to have more trust in a brand or an idea of a product. You know, from my former days running the food business at Del Monte, if you were to look at the price premium that consumers for everyday products, not uh, fancy premium products, but everyday products, uh, you know, the price premium that brands commanded uh, versus, say, a, a, a private label brand or an, an, a store brand, you're talking about 15, 20, 25% price premium, oftentimes with the very same ingredients within uh, each of the packaging choices. Um, and that's because consumers are looking for trust, particularly in products that are perishable. And, and so it, the opportunity is not to demonstrate, I think, that consumers want to be able to trust a company and a brand more for what it offers. I think the opportunity is um, to fulfill that trust, to, to have companies, whether it be App Harvest or others, uh, seek to start from scratch on what is a trustworthy way to make products we can stand behind. I, I think that could be rewarded in the market. Um, at least that's certainly our hope. Well, I think people are consuming more information than ever because of the pandemic. You know, it's, it's voraciously scrolling through our, our news apps and social media feeds, looking for information, seeing all the stories. I would also take I would also build on, you know, the consumer touch points that you mentioned and agree a hundred percent, even if we were having this conversation 18 months ago, if we were having this conversation in January of 2020. Um, it would be a very, very different conversation, I think, in terms of what topics would be of greatest interest. I would say in addition to the planetary issue and the environmental issue, one thing that the pandemic has also really brought to the forefront, I think, is the people issue and the people who work to produce our food in agriculture, you know, people who work in the agriculture farm industry, people who work in industrial food processing, I think some of the stories that we've heard about conditions and people, um, you know, getting sick in close quarters, having to do work, you know, for companies in order to sort of keep those food production lines going, um, especially in some of the meat processing plants, that has been um, relevatory, I think, for a lot of people who never maybe gave that a thought. And then to have it become visible in such a distressing and alarming way as a result of a global pandemic, I think really um, underscores uh, the people aspect when we're talking about food production. Because even though you have robots, and we'll talk, to the, we'll talk about that in the second half of the show, you still need people. And there are still people <laughs> involved yes. in any business, especially you know, something that involves perishable food. So is, you know, you talk also about um, 
the people who are in the communities that you're building your facilities in and how the facilities are built, is is that almost more paramount now? I mean, people are from one point of view, I mean, you need the planet to survive, but you know, I would save a person before I save a tree. Um, how, how has the pandemic informed sort of that people aspect of things? And has that made you know, how you are building your staff and employee profile, perhaps more more relevant or more interesting now than it would have been 18 months ago? Well, I think the way that we make food is, is become into sharper focus. And, you know, if you think about, frankly, the breeding grounds that we've seen some of these animal agriculture facilities become, it's, it's a sharp call out to that the fact that we sometimes don't want to know the compromises the industry makes to enjoy the food that we crave. And, and yet at the same time, I think that consumers are more and more willing to look past their own denial uh, to say, wow, it, you know, is there anything better? It's almost as if those of us who consume food didn't really want to know the ugliness of how it's made because we didn't think there was an alternative. But now there are more and more alternatives. And, and at our Harvest, we seek to try to fulfill that by, by frankly, providing better labor conditions that are safer. You know, we aren't immune um, from all of the difficult challenges in the high volume business of making food that people want every day. But we are putting in place the best practices versus the worst practices. You know, we are thoughtfully during the pandemic uh, offering hundreds of people, skilled labor jobs in a setting that we think is safer. Um, and again, this is not to say that we won't stumble. I'm sure we will um, as we achieve greater and greater levels of scale. Uh, but I, I think we believe that spending more on employees to empower them to have part of the upside, you know, we give almost every employee a share of a company in App Harvest. Um, we provide them a living wage. We invest in container farms, actually, to train high schoolers in the Kentucky and West Virginia area. You know, we make these investments because we think it's the right thing to do, but also because we think we'll be rewarded that in the long term, consumers and employees will remember that we try to operate to a higher standard and that that will accrue to the long term benefit of the company. Um, now, we're young and uh, we've yet to prove this story out, uh, but we, we have a lot of positive encouragement, even in the short term, uh, by operating to a higher standard at App Harvest. Well, one of the interesting um, you know, points I think you make is if people don't have choice, they choose the thing that's in front of them or they have to choose nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult sometimes to choose nothing based on principle. Um, it's difficult to choose nothing if the thing is essential to survival. So expanded choice for consumers. And, you know, as we know, especially in the United States, people absolutely vote with their dollars and their buying power and their boycott power now, which I think is also something relatively new. Um, I mean, not that boycotting has not existed in the past, but it, it seems to be much more powerful now, having been amplified by social media. Um, you know, I, I'll say really quickly, just before we go into the break, it, it's interesting. Also, I, I had a guest on the show. Her name is Cara Nicoletti. She's the founder of a company called Seymour Meats and Vegetables. And she's a small company that 
um, launched right at the beginning of the pandemic. And essentially her idea is to get people to eat more vegetables by putting vegetables in sausage (laughs) (laughs) and making really great sausage from, um, you know, really small, um, almost artisanal farmers and, you know, really being um, in a thoughtful, um, sustainable, you know, farming way. And she built her supply chain and production chain in a way um, to, in order to achieve sort of the standards and the footprint uh, that she wanted in terms of the quality of her product from production to item to the way it was produced by the people, her production chain was outside the traditional and institutional food chain so that when that system started to break down, hers didn't because it wasn't a part of that. It was outside of that. Um, and she managed to sustain, you know, opening a small company and building a small company and be okay with, you know, her small staff and, and the people that she was working with because she was outside of all these things. So mm. um, it's also an interesting moment to see that, you know, she she didn't know a pandemic was coming. <laughs> She didn't know that supply chains were going to, you know, really start to break down and there were going to be shortages and and things like that. She just wanted to build something in in a way that she thought was the right way. And it turns out that, you know, it it, it had definitely, you know, a silver lining to that. We are going to take a quick break and find out who the sponsors of this show. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of members who are mostly listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes, are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. We are talking with David Lee, president of App Harvest. If you want to check out what they're doing in Appalachia in their 60-acre indoor controlled environmental agriculture facility, they're growing a lot of tomatoes, I'll tell you that, you can take a look at them online, App Harvest, that's appharvest.com. You can follow them on social media, at App Harvest. If you want to follow David, you can find him on Twitter, at Another D. Lee, and I'll just reiterate something from the top of the show. App Harvest doesn't stand for app. It stands for Appalachia, which is an interesting idea when you think about that part of the country potentially becoming the cradle of, you know, American vegetable harvesting. Uh, That's not not a location on the map I would have guessed if I was on a game show. Um, But it makes a lot of sense in some ways because I guess you can build a facility almost anywhere you want to 
Yeah, you know, I think with a clean sheet of paper and a fair amount of capital, we had the ability to pick a location where the climate is getting more and more conducive for our mission. You know, here we talk about central Appalachia and, and frankly, I think three or four of the last few seasons, we've seen the climate get more wet, which means more recycled rainwater, which means less potential use of resources that we don't want to consume. And, you know, recently we announced the acquisition of Root AI, a Boston-based venture-backed um, AI and robotics company. And and what's, what's incredible is we literally have robots in the hills of Appalachia helping us make more and more and better and better product. Um, so it goes to show you the best technology doesn't have to be relegated uh, to the coasts. You know, they the best technology can be used at scale wherever it's best. And, and for us, that's right in central Appalachia, Kentucky and West Virginia and the surrounding region. Well, you certainly have more space there than you do in, in some of the places we think about as being tech hubs. The uh, robots sound really fascinating. I was reading online that you have a universal harvester named Virgo. That's right. Which has the largest data set of tomato images and can identify 50 varieties of tomatoes. I mean, I don't think I can, I don't think I could name 50 varieties of tomatoes <laughs> between now and the end of the show without using Google as my friend I would phone. Mm. Um, and it's learning, part of what it does is it learns the tomatoes and the different, um, the different sort of states that it's in from moment to moment by using imaging and things like that. It's just, it's just fascinating. It reminds me of an episode we did years ago with Chef Watson, the IBM computer, and they were teaching it how to cook by just feeding it hundreds of thousands of recipes so that it would just start to understand all those things. It's such an interesting idea. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, robots are fun and fascinating. And we like the idea of that, I think, from a... um, you know, sort of like a human achievement level. You know, you put a you put a person on the moon. We have space travel. We have robots. There's something that's kind of satisfying about that as a you know civilization moving towards these different tech plateaus. But to the flip side of that, you know, I do think another you know storyline that we're talking about these days in the news is is about people and jobs and how technology is um, eliminating in some respects some older, traditional, you know, what I would call brick and mortar jobs. How do you, is the utilization of robots creating, uh, is there like a diff, do you have like people who man the robots then? So then it's a different role. Is it just shift what a employment map for a farm looks like? Or are they doing things that are just so completely different from what a person would do? that it, it doesn't even make any sense to have a conversation of, you know, robots are taking people jobs or we don't need people because we have robots. Well, in our case um, at App Harvest, the technology, the, the Virgo system that you mentioned we purchased from Root AI is actually to add to how our hardworking team can perform better. I mean, you know, uh, part of it is adding 19 technologists to the full-time team and adding a great chief technology officer and Josh Lessing, who um, was the CEO and founder of the company we purchased, Root AI. 
But then the Virgo system itself, you know, imagine a robotic system in a facility that's, to be clear, when we talk about our first farm, we're talking about an indoor high-tech facility that's the size of 50 football fields. That's amazing. You know, our our reservoir, the the reservoir that we recycle our rainwater out of is 70 Olympic-size pools. Um, And so having technology to be able to scan quickly um, even some of the fruit that's fallen to the, the floor of the farm and know, hey, that's ripe or that's not ripe, is incredibly useful to all of the, the harvest care specialists, the, the, the human employees, as they seek every day to know when to harvest and when not to, just to, to make sure that we are seeing a tangible example of technology used. This is a case, and this will not be the case, frankly, for robotics in every application. But in our application, I really believe that our robotics are are improving the humanity and the working conditions of our human laborers on the floor at our facilities. And remember, we had under 50 employees a year ago, and here we have more than 10x that amount. So there will be no shortage of new jobs created, skilled labor jobs, in a part of the country that really suffered under the declines of employment associated with coal mining. Um, so for us, um, we see a tremendous increase in, in high value, highly skilled professions that are going to be created in concert with the technology that we've acquired. But your question is an important one always to ask, because there are certainly many examples outside of that harvest where some of that technology is coming at the cost of the human condition. The good news for us is this is a case where Virgo really will enhance the human condition and and there is no shortage of new job creation, we believe, uh, that we'll find uh, in the future. Where do you think the general public awareness is about understanding a company like App Harvest and sort of placing it, um, you know, on the landscape of you know, what types of companies we have in the U.S. and where our food comes from and what people feel about um, indoor harvested fruits and vegetables and things like that. Do you think it's a company where um, it's going to take some years for everybody to kind of really understand what's happening here? Is it a lot of really um, individually kind of complex ideas that come together as something that's even more complex and tightly you know, wound together? Do people not care? Are they just going to be happy to see that tomato in their grocery store and, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe have a cool, you know, high school project working, you know, in the shipping container lab? Well, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of a combination of all. And, and let me explain. I think for the company, you're seeing incredible awareness of investors, whether they, whether they be retail investors or what's called ESG investors seek proactively out companies like App Harvest. And, you know, our being able to go public in the time frame, which was dramatically fast. I think we signed our SPAC merger agreement in November. And by the end of January, my first day actually on the job, we were trading under our own ticker on NASDAQ. I think people are looking for stories like App Harvest from an investor standpoint. I think from a consumer standpoint, People are largely unaware of both the ugliness of the products they're consuming today and of the options and choices that they're going to have. Um, And we think that it's partially our job 
at App Harvest to make people aware um, so that they understand that there's a better option. Um, and we hope that comes uh, with, uh, with scale. I mean, right now, I, I can't tell every one of your listeners to go to your local grocery stores and try an App Harvest product because we're still scaling up. But soon enough, I will be able to. And, and then that burden of education will become more ours. Uh, but for now, we're just heads down um, trying to prove out the story and trying to get to greater and greater scale. Do you have a uh, visitor center and facility tours? I mean, there was a point in time where you could do that kind of thing. I remember years and years ago as a, as a, as a kid, the age of, of your kids even, going on a factory tour of the Kellogg's Cornflake factory and oh, yes. going to the uh, Pineapple factory in Hawaii and things like that. And it's always just fun to see those things. And of course, if you're a more foodie, foodie person, you have all the winery tours, which people love to go see the, the vines and then how everything's produced. Yeah, we, we are building out over time um, a real campus around our Moorhead, Kentucky facility, our first facility, the 60-acre farm that we're mentioning. And, you know, we have promised the world 12 of these at-scale facilities by 2025. So it may take us a bit of time, but part of our mission is to be transparent. And that means that versus some of the tougher labor practices you see from open field farming, um, we happily can welcome people to come and see our, you know, extraordinarily clean and high tech facility. Um, so I think that'll come with time. I mean, right now, candidly, we built our first farm during the pandemic. We had our first harvest in the last three months. We're so early um, that uh, we're not quite ready to welcome whomever to come visit us. But we intend to uh, be that transparent as we get to greater and greater scale. And that'll be fun. And then hopefully you'll have a farm stand where people can pick up tomatoes on their way out. Um, we, <laughs> That's we are, a great idea. That's a great idea. We'll it would be a lot of fun, the, the App Harvest farm stand. Um, and then all the things and tomatoes from around the world, because it's not just American ketchup. I mean, tomatoes are, you know, probably one of the most common Italian dishes people would recognize would be yeah. pizza and, and pasta. And both of those are very tomato dependent. Um, interestingly, you know, years ago there was a, a restaurant in New York that was opening and they were making Neapolitan pizzas and they were trying to make it as authentic as possible with the cooking time and the temperature and the flour and things like that. And, and I, I recall the chef being interviewed by a journalist and the journalist said, but you're not using your, you're not using the tomatoes imported from Italy. Mm. And the chef replied, well, but that's not Italian. An Italian chef would never import something from anywhere. They're going to get it from, it's so regional, they're going to get it from down the street. So that's, we're, we're being authentically Italian by not importing the Italian tomatoes, but by using our local tomatoes. Well, I love tomatoes. that answer. Yeah, and which made a huge amount of sense. Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, one day I imagine a world where every species of tomato um, can be grown in ideal conditions because we aren't as subject to the open field climate that you see uh, the current industry subject to. But that's down the road. That's way down the road. Let's hope for it to come soon. Well, the last question that I have for you um, before we close out is just one that's a little bit more of a, of a kind of foodie question. And it speaks to the idea that tomato is the burger of vegetables. Tomato is also one of the most, I think, contentious produce items when you talk about people who are really serious about their food because it is such a seasonal 
item at its origin. It really is a summertime fruit. You know, it's regional. You have the different types. We have the heirloom tomatoes. There are people who would, you know, snub their nose and say, oh, I would never eat a winter tomato from the grocery store that, you know, hard and mealy and grown indoors somewhere. But to the flip side of that, you know, you have very famous and well-respected, you know, entities like the Chef's Garden in Ohio that grows vegetables for top chefs around the country. They have an indoor garden greenhouse where they grow things indoors. So what, 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 what do you think, where, where do you think you need to take people in terms of their thinking about seasonality and the terroir of a vegetable or something that's grown in the soil? And are those old-fashioned ideas that we need to get away from? Are they things that will happen occasionally as, you know, nature and situation provide? Is, or is there a time when you know, the heirloom tomato, you know, beautifully done will be available all year round. Well, I I embrace terroir, whether you're talking about wine or you're talking about fruits or vegetables. And what I need to do is convince all the foodies out there that instead of demanding that the planet and that human workers bear the burden of the terroir we love, why not leverage technology to create in, for example, our facilities, any terroir, any working conditions you want with any species or variety of product you love, because that is the promise of a controlled environment ag system. We can create the ideal conditions for whatever product that a local foodie would love to enjoy, and we can make it more local so that you're not asking for product to be shipped in from far away oftentimes planted and grown under really difficult labor conditions, you can enjoy a great piece of fruit or veg specific to the conditions it was meant to be grown in pretty close to home. So that's an amazing point to make about being able to, you know, when we, when I think about, and I think when many people think about indoor farming, recreating how much, you know, water, soil, and nutrients, all that type of thing that a plant needs. But I've never thought about controlling the indoor environment down to the detail of replicating another environment. So that means in, in broad strokes, it would be possible to replicate the terroir, the soil of a specific plot in Bordeaux somewhere and grow grapes and grow, you know, Cheval Blanc in Kentucky. Yeah, it's, it's not our business, <laughs> the wine business, uh, though I'm a huge consumer of it. Um, but the point I'm raising is today we are already experimenting with a, a large number of natural varieties that grow under different conditions. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think it's one of the promises of broadly controlled environment agriculture to be able to pick the right environment for the right variety so that you get the best product. That's an, that's an interesting idea to consider. I hadn't thought about that. Um, so many things to consider, David, it's always such a pleasure to have you. Um, and I always feel that the 45 minutes we have together is, is never sufficient. I could probably spend a season talking with you about all these, you know, unpacking all these (laughs) different ideas and things, uh, in detail. Um, please do stay in touch and keep us posted. We would love to hear about the actual apps from App Harvest at some point if those <laughs> come online. And as things start to build, it's really um, it's really fascinating product, fascinating project company, and um, 
you know, really uh, uh, the right time perhaps in the world for something like this. And if you're going to have everything built by 2025, then that gives you five years to the 2030 Only a few years. By the way, a true pleasure speaking with you, Jennifer. I look forward to it. So again, this is David Lee, president of App Harvest. You can find them online, appappharvest.com, and on social media at App Harvest. You can follow David on Twitter at Another D. Lee. If you like this podcast and you want more of it, how did you find it? Which podcasting platform are you a fan of? Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you found it, it would be great if you could subscribe to it. Give us a five-star review. Let us know you loved it. It's always nice. You'll help somebody else discover it maybe in another part of the world. If you thought it was fantastic, come back and see us again next week. If you really can't live without it, go to heritageradionetwork.org. Click the beating heart and make a donation. Maybe what you spent on vegetables this week at the market. It'll help us make more radio and help us keep you informed of important stories that are happening in the world right now that are getting to impact what we eat tomorrow. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bites. Tech Bites is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>